Hi everyone, welcome to episode 14 of The Real Food Mamas. This is Aglaé Jacob and I'm here with Stephanie Grinke. Today we have a special guest here to talk to us about baby-led weaning. You might remember Chris Cresser mentioning it on episode 7. Baby-led weaning is simply a way to introduce solid foods to your baby and what I really love about it is that it not only puts your baby in control but it also it's also less preparation for mamas because baby basically eats the same food as the rest of the family. Yes that means no need to buy or prepare purees and no need to spoon feed your baby. So before diving into today's topic to learn more about the why's the what and the how of baby led weaning let's hear what has been happening with Stephanie and us. So hi, Stephanie, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for asking. I lately just I found a nanny. That's the the hot topic of the week. Um, I found a nanny at around six when Otto was around six months. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't quite ready at that point to let him go and be with another person. (laughs) I had a nanny come to my home and I could hear them playing upstairs. And whenever he cried or he laughed, I just wanted to rush upstairs and it, it may have been the situation that I was at home with them, but it didn't feel right. And so I said goodbye to that nanny and um, didn't really think about it until just recently. Otto seems to be a lot more comfortable with other people right now, and I wanted to get some work done um, and just, you know, have somebody available in case my husband and I want to go on a date night or I want to go to a meeting or just, you know, the backup case. Mm-hmm. And so found this lady she was recommended to me by somebody in my birth network and so I felt comfortable with that because I knew I could trust at least the person in the birth network to give me a good referral Um, and I did a trial run with the nanny I went there and hung out with her and him for an hour to see how she interacted with him and to get an idea of what she was like and what she would do with him when they were together and then the next time I went I dropped him off and hung out with her for about 15 or 20 minutes and let him feel really comfortable with the situation and then I left and it was interesting because the nanny made sure that I said goodbye to him and didn't just sneak out because Mm -hmm. in her years of experience as an au pair and as a child care uh, provider and daycare provider and her experience with her four boys, um, it's best to really make sure that they know that you're leaving. And so I said goodbye to him and then I went to lunch with a friend. I, I only wanted to leave him for about an hour or two the very first day, so it wasn't this huge dramatic change. Mm-hmm. Um, went to lunch and I was so afraid because it was <laughs> right around the time that Otto had to go down for a nap. And I thought for sure I was going to pick up a screaming, tired, angry baby. And so I I asked her, I'm like, I'm not going to be able to have a good time on this lunch date. Can you please just text me and let me know that things are okay or that I'm going (laughs) to come back to this monster? And she sent me a message 10 minutes after I told her that he probably would want to go down for his nap and said, he's sleeping. (laughs) <laughs> I could not believe it. I was like, I need to find out what this lady did. Because up until that point, I had been walking him in the ergo for a while to calm him down and then lightly putting him down in the crib. Or I'd go on an ergo walk with him. Um, those were the two strategies. And so I, I thought for sure she would have to do that. But when I picked him up, he actually was totally fine. He was hanging out in her arms and didn't reach out for me, mm-hmm. which... I, I felt 
multiple ways about. Mm-hmm. I was sad that he wasn't super excited to see me, but I was I felt confirmed that it was an okay you know decision to leave him and to maybe let a nanny take over for a little bit every week. Mm-hmm. Um, but her strategy, get this. So when I asked her how she put him down, she goes, I just told him it was time to go to sleep and I laid him on the mattress and I patted his tummy for a couple minutes and he went to sleep. I can't believe this. <laughs> this sounds like sci-fi. <laughs> I know. I thought she was playing a sick joke on me. And I looked at her and she goes, nope, that's what I did. She's like, I, I know it sounds crazy, but that's kind of what happens. You know, if you let somebody else take over, the baby doesn't try to pull tricks on you, you know, or, hmm. you know, the baby usually will go down a little bit easier. That's not always the case. Not with all babies. There's no um, always when it comes mm-hmm. to babies, but She's like, that's often the case. Um, So we went ahead and tried to do it that night for bedtime, and (laughs) not so much. It didn't really work, but I think he was up for too long, and so he had gotten overtired. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the following days, my husband tried it. He just put Otto in the crib, patted his tummy, told him it was time to go to sleep, and he did. And (laughs) now we're able to do that for every nap. So there's hope. (laughs) I know. I mean, this this was from a baby that absolutely needed moving, like rocking motion or nursing motion to fall asleep. And he finally, you know, it it comes with age, right? And maturity and comfort Mm -hmm. and them knowing that you're going to be there, um, that we were able to do that without tons of crying and screaming and a horrible situation for everybody. Mm-hmm. So if if there's one good thing about finding a nanny, that that's it. I mean, she <laughs> is worth her weight in gold for that. That's awesome. Oh, my God. That Yeah, I, I'm still there with the walk, walking in the ergo and bouncing and nursing to go to sleep. So I, I think maybe I'll give it another try. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and being consistent is mm-hmm. the key. I mean, you really have to do that. Um, right now, you know, I, we're, that's what that's what's working, but who knows what's going to happen in a week mm-hmm. or two from now. So you just right. go with it. And the other thing I noticed with the nanny too is, since she has four boys of her own, who they're they're grown now, uh, you could tell she was way more calm and laid back about watching him. You know, he would do something, and I'm like, oh no, Otto, don't do that, or oh my gosh, he's mm-hmm. gonna he's gonna be horrible with naps, and she's like, oh, he'll be fine. So, mm-hmm. um, but she said she was the same way with her first. She said her firstborn was the hardest as far as him getting to sleep and his temperament and all of that. So I'm curious for the the other mamas out there, if you have multiple kids, was your first one harder or is that not the case with you? I'd I'd love to hear some insight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, leave us a comment on the website at realfoodmamaspodcast.com or we now have a Facebook page. So just uh, look us up on Facebook, look for Real Food Mamas and you can interact with us there. Great. And how about you? How are things going? Things are going uh, well here. Um, Yeah, I guess I'm really interested in trying your new uh, trick to get your baby to sleep. But because we recently moved, as I said last last week, I just want to make sure things are really settled and he feels comfortable before trying to implement another change. But um, I'm hopeful that maybe in a couple of weeks we, we can be there. And other than that, we're just really happy that we moved to the countryside. And Aiden has been loving spending a lot more time outside. We go for walks and we just 
spend a lot of time outside because we have a lot a big space here under the tree so we love it and uh, it's good to have his grandparents uh, closer and just have a little bit more help and support and that's allowed me to work a little bit more on my online private practice still part-time but it's working perfectly for me at this time I really love it uh, and uh, it's been good to been to be back to work on a part-time basis and also work from home so I still get to spend a lot of time with my family and uh, this is truly the best of both worlds for me and uh, I just wanted to mention for those interested in working with me I'm still taking new clients so you can find out more about my services at radicatanutrition.com but now let's talk about baby led weaning. So today's guest is Dr. Jennifer Salib Huber. She's a naturopathic doctor and registered dietitian who has been in private practice since 2004. She works with patients of all ages and especially loves working with women and children. While getting ready to introduce solids to her eldest daughter in 2008, she stumbled on baby led weaning and successfully used the methods to uh, introduce all three of our children to food. She has facilitated workshops in Halifax and Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, that's in, uh, on the east coast of Canada, for those who don't know, since 2010, and loves introducing parents to this real food method of food introduction. All right, so we're really excited to have an expert on the topic of baby-led weaning today, Dr. Jennifer Salib-Huber. As a naturopathic doctor, registered dietitian, and mom of three, she has a lot to share about how to introduce little ones to real food to prevent them from becoming picky eaters and also help them grow strong and healthy. So welcome, Jen. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs> Thanks for being here. Well, so I'm really excited to talk more about baby-led weaning because this is an approach I really believe in. And I think that it doesn't mean that it's the only way to do it, but it can be a really good way to do it for many babies. But uh, just to, you know, for maybe some of our listeners haven't heard about baby-led weaning. So can you let us know a little bit more about what it is and what it means? Yeah, absolutely. So I always um, like to clarify that weaning doesn't imply weaning from the breast or bottle or from milk. Um, sometimes that's a question that comes up in the workshops. In North America, some people tend to prefer the term baby led feeding. Mm -hmm. In UK, in the UK and Europe where the term originated, they use the term baby led weaning. But essentially what it is, it's a method of transitioning babies from milk to solid food. And the transition should start at around the six-month mark, um, and it's a, it's a process. So uh, instead of offering spoon-fed purees and it being mother-led or parent-led, the baby-led weaning approach really uh, offers foods in, when babies are showing signs of readiness versus their chronological age. It generally doesn't involve spoon-feeding, but it can. For some people, they do a blend of puree and baby-led weaning, and, uh, and baby is allowed to control the amount of food that they that they eat by self-feeding age-appropriate foods. So that's, you know, kind of in a nutshell how it differs from the traditional puree feeding. Mm -hmm. Okay, thanks for that. So how can we know when baby is ready for solid food then if we don't go by a specific age? 
Exactly. Well, just like you guys were saying, I think before we started recording, mm-hmm. that your your children um, are very similar in age, but really took to foods differently. And we know that some babies are born at 37 weeks, and some babies are born at 42 weeks, and there's a range for most milestones. So if we look at rolling, uh, you know, waving, clapping, there's a range that's considered an accepted time frame for babies to develop these. So it makes sense that there's probably also going to be a range in which babies will be ready for solid food. So the the recommendation in, in certainly in Nova Scotia where I am and I think probably in most of North America has been that between the age of four and six months old you can start to introduce food. Primarily purees is what they're recommending and or fortified rice cereal. The difference with baby led weaning is that instead of looking at your child's age, what you want to be looking for are the signs of readiness. So these are some developmental signs that tell us that baby is ready and likely parallels changes on the inside, which also help us to know that baby's ready for food of all kinds. So the first one to appear is one that parents often notice really early on, which is an interest in food. Mm -hmm. So how old were your little guys when they started to show interest in your food and what you were eating? I think Stephanie, it started earlier for you, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he likes to put everything in his <laughs> mouth, so I could never use that as a, a measure. Uh, but yeah, right at six months, he definitely was interested and he took to it immediately. He put things in his mouth and chewed and swallowed That's at great. that time. Yeah, around six months. I thought he was showing interest in food. He was looking at me eat. and But uh, <laughs> when I offered food to him, he wasn't really interested in doing much with it other than just squeeze the food, but not really put it in his mouth. But it's really around yeah. nine months. And even so, in, he just turned 10 months now. And in the last couple of weeks, now I really see, you know, the interest in food is there for sure. <laughs> Yeah. And so often the interest in food can appear as early as even four months. Mm. So people will say, oh, uh, you know, every time that I'm eating, my baby is trying is watching me and I feel like, you know, they're staring at me. That's often the first one of the first signs to appear. Uh, And it's great that if baby's taking an interest in what you're doing, but they're really noticing that you're using your hand and you're picking something up and you're bringing it to your mouth. It could be a rock. Mm -hmm. They don't know that it's food, right? They just know Mm -hmm. that you're doing something that looks kind of fun. So that's the first sign to appear. One of the others is that they have to be able to pick things up and put that in their mouth. So somewhere around six months is usually when most babies can pick up a toy, bring it up to their mouth, mouth it, chew it, gum it. And of course, that makes sense that that would bode well for them being able to self-feed. If they can do that with a toy, they can probably do that with food as well. The other sign, um, which is somewhat is quite important, especially for it to be not only successful but safe, is that they've lost the tongue thrust reflex. So this is a reflex that whenever something touches the back of a baby's tongue, it causes them to thrust their tongue forward. So I think it's pretty self-evident that that would be a safety reflex and that it would prevent any large objects or small objects from getting to the back of their throat and posing a choking hazard. Um, every now and then when I'm seeing patients in the office, somebody will tell me about their baby, um, you know, that they tried to start with cereal or purees at four months, but the baby kept pushing the, the spoon out of their mouth with the tongue. And that's a perfect example of a baby who still very much has this reflex present that isn't ready for solid food. So we can definitely see that re- that reflex persist until six months. And sometimes it's even seven months before it's completely gone. But if it's not gone, it's going to make the whole process of feeding, regardless of the, of the method, a little bit challenging. Mm-hmm. 
And then the last um, sign of readiness is the ability to sit upright, mostly unassisted. So this is one that in the workshops, when we have like the six or seven month old baby, we can really illustrate this. This doesn't mean that you can sit them down on their bum on the floor and that they're not going to topple over in a few minutes because that would can take <laughs> several months for them to be able to do that proficiently. But if you look at a baby who's say four months old and you sit them on your lap or you sit them in a chair, they're going to slump a little bit and their head's going to kind of fall forward. Forward, and you can see that that could compromise the back of their throat, which would be a safety concern if they were feeding. A baby who has some torso control can clearly hold their head up straight, um, doesn't slump when they're sitting on someone's lap. That's what we mean by the ability to sit upright. Mm -hmm. So as long as your baby can do that consistently and has all of the other signs, they're probably ready for self-feeding. Okay. And the age range at which I typically see this is somewhere between five and seven months for it to start. My kids um, who, you know, who started at six, my oldest, who's going to be eight, we started her at like six months on the dot. Um, and it was really my experience of feeding with her that got us into baby led weaning because she didn't want anything to do with being spoon fed. Mm -hmm. We would put the spoon in her mouth and I had spent months sourcing and preparing all these various yeah. organic combinations of food, uh, pureeing entire chicken which is not fun and she just wanted nothing to do with it so it was kind of trial and error over time that we figured it out with her the younger two who are twins were born at 35 weeks and so they really didn't show signs of readiness until much closer to seven months so all of these signs will appear but you really have to look at the individual baby and not compare to siblings or friends or other relatives to know when your baby's going to be ready All right. So you say usually between five and seven months with my baby, it didn't really happen before nine months. Is that yeah. still within the normal range or it's just more ex not as common? Um, I would say it's not uncommon. Um, you know, it's probably not the the most common age range, but I frequently will see people um, who, you know, really say that it takes until eight or nine months for their babies to really get it or to be interested in it. Um, you know, so that's that's not unusual. And sometimes that's even the case for puree feeding. Um, it doesn't, sometimes it's independent of the method of feeding and it's just that baby is thriving on breast milk. And we know that milk should be the predominant source of nutrition until well after nine months. So um, breast milk is far more nutrient-dense than any food that they could eat. Mm -hmm. So there generally isn't a large concern as long as somewhere by nine months the feeding has starting to taking place because by the time that they reach 12 months, they really should be getting more food, more nutrition from food because breast milk can't sustain them at that when they're at that size. Okay, that's good to know. That's reassuring. And yeah, my baby <laughs> sure loves his milk and he's definitely not uh, skinny in any way. So uh, that's why I'm, I wasn't too worried about it. <laughs> exactly. And you'll probably find my son was very similar. My two daughters really took to feeding really quickly. But my son, even though we started him probably at about six months and three quarters, it was several weeks of playing mm -hmm. with food um, and touching food before he really even thought to bring it up to his mouth he didn't really take till eating I would say until probably 18 months before it seemed like he really wanted food instead of just eating it because it was uh -huh. there yeah that's funny because we, we keep joking he would put everything in his mouth but food so <laughs> <laughs> that's funny but uh, yeah so you talked about the different signs of readiness I think that's really helpful for uh, parents to know but does that have anything to do with uh, gut mat maturity is it correct Related, in your opinion? 
Well, and that's a really interesting question because uh, gut maturity is very important um, before starting solid food. So for, um, for people who aren't familiar with what that means, so until a baby's about four to six months old, they have what's referred to as an open gut. So this means that there are spaces between the cells in their small intestine that will allow things like large proteins, uh, antibodies from mum, which from breast milk, which is protective, to pass through. So the concern with starting foods too early is that if this gut maturity hasn't completed, then large proteins introduced through foods may pass through into the bloodstream and predispose the baby to developing allergies. Mm -hmm. And we see that with um, studies have, you know, shown us several times that food introductions before the age of three months are very clearly associated with an increase in allergies. Um, And breast milk, when, when mom is breastfeeding, breast milk actually coats the small intestine, protecting it, so providing some passive immunity. So somewhere around six months, babies will start to produce their own antibodies to protect their gut, um, and the gut is considered closed. There's some interesting research suggesting that gut closure actually starts before birth and isn't completed until solid food has started. Mm. So it's actually the process of eating the solid food that further completes um, gut closure. Uh, And there has been some really interesting commentaries on, you know, what do we do with a baby? Do we assume that a baby who is eight months old and not interested in food and not interested and self-feeding maybe has a gut that is closing later. I think that that's a really interesting mm-hmm. question. Um, and I, I haven't been able to find any supporting research for it, but that makes sense. If we, if we think about that the outward signs of readiness are likely paralleling the development of the GI tract inside, um, then that would make sense. It seems to just make a lot of sense to just follow our baby's lead then. Exactly, as we as we should anyway, mm-hmm. right? I mean, with with all things. I mean, if we, you know, if a baby rolls at two months, um, and then a sibling doesn't roll until four months, we don't do anything to try and encourage them to roll. We just know that they'll eventually develop that milestone. Mm-hmm. Great. So, thanks for explaining that. I I think our audience will love to hear about the gut maturity because you don't hear a whole lot about that um, outside <laughs> of this conversation, um, yeah. but. I want to ask you, what are the benefits of doing baby-led weeding over traditional purees and and baby food? I know for us, it's way more convenient, (laughs) but what are some of the other... And the convenience factor is big. And when I do workshops and when I try and and teach people about this, that's one of the big things that I um, that I talk to them about is that you don't have to have baby food on hand. You don't have to make it. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to heat it up and carry a spoon with you all the time. Um, For the most part, as long as foods are developmentally appropriate, and we'll talk about that Mm -hmm. too, as long as foods are developmentally appropriate, you can feed them whatever you're eating. And so it makes it a lot more uh, convenient for parents and really for anybody who's involved in the feeding and care of your child. Some of the other benefits, um, it allows baby to enjoy experimenting and exploring with food. Most people have heard the saying, food before one is just for fun. Um, And as I always talk about is that, you know, food at six months old, food is really much more about the taste, the texture, and the experience of eating. So think about smooshing that avocado between their fingers um, and, you know, trying to see how that feels when it goes in their ear. That's all part of the sensory <laughs> experience for them. So it's a lot of fun. And some of my favorite pictures of my children eating are the ones where they're trying to shove the avocado up their nose or, you know, they're trying to have fun with the food. 
Um, some of the other things that it allows baby to participate at the family table. And I think this is becoming increasingly important because we continue to see research emerging about the importance of having a family meal together, even if it can only happen once a day. The importance of families sitting down, connecting, talking, sharing their day, and especially for kids to be able to have that one-on-one time where there's no phone, no TV, kind of no outside distractions. And so starting this from day one literally is really, I think, you know, it speaks towards the, those benefits as well. Um, it follows the feed-on-demand principle, so like a baby who's breastfed or even a baby who's bottle-fed, really trusting them to know when they're hungry and to know when they're full. So if they're hungry and they want more, they can have more, but if they're full, they're full. So following that feed-on-demand principle. Um, helps to develop growth and fine motor skills. This makes sense. Mm-hmm. If we give them more opportunities to practice and to play uh, with food, then they will you know, develop those skills more quickly. Um, and the last one, which is one that I've certainly seen with my kids, is that it may help to de- to reduce pickiness and fussiness later in life. And there's also some research to support this. So there's not a whole lot of research, and a lot of it um, – Sometimes the research is difficult to extrapolate because it's all self-reported because you can't really take two groups of of parents and say, you're going to do baby-led weaning and you're going to do purees and we're going to follow you for six years and see where you end up. Um, That's not a really practical study. So a lot of the research that we have is based on self-reports. So it's the best that we can get at this point. So one of the one of the studies, which is the first to really look at the impact of feeding style on things like food preferences and body mass index in childhood – Um, this was published in 2012, found that babies who were introduced to foods with the baby-led weaning method were less likely to be picky eaters at age six and, interestingly, more likely to be at a healthier body weight. Um, So those were some really interesting findings. And so with respect to um, food choices, it makes sense. If we're not feeding them, you know, the same 16 foods in various combinations of purees, if they're introduced to more flavors and textures, uh, spice, different cuisines. These are all things that will help them to make other choices later in life. One of my biggest criticisms of kids' menus is that it's the same flavor, just repackaged. Hmm. It's chicken fingers and fries and grilled cheese and fries and hamburger and fries. There's no flavor there, let alone the fact that it's awful food. But so this allows kids to taste, you know, chicken curry. We, we introduce chicken curry to our kids as one of their first meals. And to this day, two out of three love it. <laughs> so... Um, you know, things like sushi and, uh, you know, cooked beet greens and all these types of foods that people typically wouldn't think of as being child-friendly really can be. Um, and there's no reason not to introduce these foods early on and help to develop those preferences. Yeah, I, um, I've i always been fascinated with my son Otto when I offer him foods because I, I put maybe three or four different things on his tray and he always picks up a different food first. Mm-hmm. He was obsessed with avocado for in the for a long time actually and he would always choose that one first but then you know, recently it's been blueberries and some days he'll pick up like sardines or salmon instead or liver first and he'll go for that so it's really cool to watch them and to trust that they know what they're doing as far as how much they're eating and what they their body needs. 
And if we remove our expectations of what we think a baby food is, yeah. they'll probably surprise us. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and people do this with lemon all the time. They give their their babies lemon, expecting them to hate it, and most of the time they love it, <laughs> yeah. right? Oh, I haven't done that We've one yet. have been lying yeah, yesterday, it's, it's and it was fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, they end up loving it. Um, I use the example of hummus, and lots of babies love hummus. And I don't know if it's the garlic, if it's the texture, but lots of babies love it. And you wouldn't expect mm-hmm. that to be true. Um, I have a picture that I use in a slideshow in the workshops of a baby eating a pickle. And Mm -hmm. again, not that a pickle is necessarily the best food, but if we remove our expectations of what we think a baby will like, um, you know, they might, uh, they might really surprise us. So, and this baby loved the pickles. The mom said that every time she held up the pickle jar, it was just like candy. So it was funny. Yeah, definitely removing the expectations is huge. Even when we go out to restaurants, we always have people staring at us like, what are you doing? You're going to, your your baby's going to choke or I can't believe your baby's eating that or that's unsafe. And I think a lot of the concern with baby led weaning is how, how do they do it? They maybe not, they may not have any teeth. The <laughs> pieces are a little bit big. Like how, how can we figure out if there's a risk of choking with baby led weaning or what's the research with that? Yeah. And that's, you know, definitely the, the first question uh, that comes up whenever I talk to someone about baby led weaning uh, and probably one that is on most people's minds. So, um, uh, the the term, of course, baby led weaning comes from Jill Rapley and Tracy Merkett's book, Baby Led Weaning, and they do a great job in a in a chapter in their book explaining why, uh, if you wait until a child is developmentally ready you don't increase the risk of choking. And a lot of that comes down to the physiology and the mechanics of eating. So again, if you wait until all of these developmental signs are ready and you offer foods that are developmentally appropriate, which in a new feeder, six, seven, eight months old, needs to be a large piece. So it needs to be handle-shaped or have a handle that they can hold onto and bring up to their mouth. So think of a carrot as being a good size um, so that, you know, a soft... Uh, fork tender but not overcooked carrot that they could pick up with one hand and then bring up to their mouth. So anything that they can bring up to their mouth and they can take a bite out of that is proportional and appropriately sized for their mouth, they'll be able to chew and then, you know, subsequently swallow. Anything that's too big or too small or they don't want, they they will gag. And so gagging and choking are two very different things. A baby's gag reflex is further up the tongue than an adult so that if that piece is too big if they don't like it if there's something that's off about it um, they will gag that food out so and most babies I don't know what your experience was with your boys but most babies will gag as part of learning to eat Um, and it's you know it's something that's a different texture it's a different taste some babies gag more than others Um, my two daughters gagged a handful of times in the first two to four weeks as they learned my son who still has a really sensitive gag reflex at five gagged pretty regularly until three so you know he would just and he loved food so much that he would shove it all in and chipmunk it into his cheeks and so if he didn't know how to Mm -hmm. chew or swallow that he would gag it out so um, the gagging is protective and recognizing the signs of gagging versus choking are you know will obviously provide some reassurance if a baby is making sounds and often gagging sounds like a cat working up a hairball but if a baby is gagging and making sounds they're not choking Um, and they're generally not distressed so I often will encourage 
encourage people to look at YouTube videos that people post of their babies eating and gagging um, so they can have a little bit of desensitization therapy without their children. And what, you know, the common theme through all of it is that the babies are not distressed by this at all. And more often than not, will reach down and pick up the food again. A baby who is choking will be very distressed, will, you know, be very panicked. um, And obviously that's not a situation than anyone wants to be in, which is why we really reinforce the the importance of offering developmentally appropriate foods at the right age. Um, so there have been a couple of studies, again, self-reports looking for differences in the reports of gagging versus choking and babies who are introduced to foods with baby lead weaning are 30% more likely to gag, which makes sense. Um, but there hasn't been an increased report in choking incidents. So this reinforces what we think is happening at six months old, that they're ready for these foods. And as long as things are developmentally appropriate, um, it shouldn't increase the risk of choking. So that's, that's the information that we have to date. Yeah, and one thing that I did to help myself transition to this a little bit more smoothly and uh, less afraid of the whole idea is I took an infant CPR class. Absolutely. And that was just good to have, you know, in the back of my head in case I needed it. So I recommend Absolutely. all moms do that, whether they're doing purees or baby-led weaning. Exactly. I think it's a good idea. My son had a, a choking incident at age two, so obviously not related to baby lead weaning. Um, and uh, we were out for dinner, and he took a piece of a chicken nugget that was too hot. Um, and when he realized it was too hot, he drew a quick breath in. And mm. uh, and as a result, um, it became lodged. And it was very clear to us very quickly that he was choking. And thanks to my husband's quick thinking and CPR skills, it all ended up perfectly well but it was terrifying so I absolutely agree Um, having those skills at the ready can be very important and the age at which a child is most likely to choke is actually age four so statistically um, for kids under 12 that is the age at which they're most likely to have a choking incident and for anybody who's had a four-year-old I think you know I've had a few at this point and it's I think it's probably because your guard is down, you're not watching them at every moment, they might be walking around the house with a snack or, you know, so I think that that makes sense. But um, as far as we know, baby lead weaning does not increase the risk of choking. That's good to know. I did this, I didn't take a, a CPR course, but I well, I had taken CPR courses in the past and we watched YouTube videos before we got started. But my son is definitely a gagger. <laughs> He gags a lot yeah. and I, I'm, I'm used to it now. But when we eat with other family members or friends, they're kind of <laughs> a little bit uh, shocked by what is happening and they, they, they feel concerned and afraid. But, I, you know, after explaining it, they see that it's definitely not in distress and seems perfectly fine so yeah Um, and another quote which is from the book which explains it well is that babies aren't able to move food to the back of their throats until after they've developed the ability to chew which comes after they've developed the ability to reach out and grab things so as long as they can reach out and grab the food and bring it up to their mouth they'll be able to chew and swallow Mm -hmm. so you have to resist the urge to help them so you don't want to bring the food to their mouth for them they really have to be able to pick it up and bring it to their mouth themselves okay yeah so 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 now that we understand a little bit better a lot better actually what baby led weaning is and the difference between gagging and choking and how to make sure when they're ready can you tell us about your favorite first food to introduce and how we should prepare food with baby lead weaning? 
Absolutely. So um, regardless of the type of food that you start with, um, we have to understand how babies pick things up at six months old. So a baby who's just starting out, um, until really about eight or nine months old, they pick everything up with the palm of their hand, and that's called the palmer grasp. So, um, you know, they will put their hand flat over the object and then kind of scrunch their fingers towards their palm to be able to pick it up. In comparison to a 10 or 11 month old who's going to be picking things up mostly with the finger and thumb or, um, you know, being able to pick up that with what we call the pincer grasp. So any foods that you offer, regardless of type with baby led weaning at six months old, really need to be um, on the larger side versus the smaller side, have either a handle or a larger lower part that they can pick up. Um, so one of my favorite first foods for all babies is meats. And I think this, you know, really speaks to, um, when we talk about iron requirements, especially in a breastfed baby and the whole reason why uh, rice cereal and fortified cereals have been in the past recommended as a first food, um, is because of their iron content. Um, and I was really happy to see that mm-hmm. the nutrition for healthy term infant document, which came out last year from health Canada, uh, really encouraged meat as a first food because it's an iron food. So, and I'd much prefer real food to a fortified rice cereal for any baby, as I'm sure you guys would as well. Mm -hmm. So, meats are definitely a a first food that that is great, but we have to think about ways to prepare them for babies who may not be able to chew larger chunks of meat. So, ground meats shaped into either a log or a finger shape, or even a large meatball, something that they could pick up with their whole hand and bring up to their mouth and take a bite out of, is a great way. So, we, for many, many, many years, every week would make a double batch of uh, ground meat meatballs, but they were in the shape of a log uh, and a finger, so that they were able to pick that up and eat that, and that was a staple for their meat servings. So, and a baby who's six months old who's going to be starting out with with meat isn't going going to be eating three or four meatballs at a time, they're probably going to be eating one uh, or pieces of one. So if you make up a large batch ahead of time, then you're able to freeze them. Chicken can also be a great first food. Um, I usually recommend one of two ways for chicken. So the first is to tear it off into strips or to cut it into strips again so that they can pick up the pe- the, the bottom piece with a with their hand. But the other way is to serve them chicken on to serve them the bone. So if you take the little pointy bone off of the of, of a drumstick and leave a little bit of meat on that's a really easy way for babies to be able to pick uh, pick up the the bone and then kind of gnaw the meat off so when I show pictures of that in the workshop people are always kind of slightly horrified and slightly fascinated by seeing a six-month-old with a giant turkey leg but it um, it's a really great way for them to be able to do it and people have also um, you know modified other meats on the bone as well you know things like t-bone steaks and that kind of thing because they don't need a lot of meat they you know need realistically a few tablespoons to meet their iron requirements along with other foods. So meats are great. Uh, fish can also be great, but it can be a challenge um, to serve fish because it's so flaky. So I'll often suggest making like a fish cake with sweet potatoes so that you could mix up, let's say, with, for example, some salmon and some sweet potato, maybe some onions, some dills for flavor, uh, an egg to hold it all together. Uh, and again, you could shape it either into a meatball shape, into a patty shape, mm-hmm. into a log shape. These are all great first foods that would help babies with their iron requirements. What about sardines Just, for fish? Yeah, and as long as, you know, as long as they can pick it up, the sardine would be a great shape, Mm -hmm. absolutely. 
Yeah. Um, so those would be, you know, it's difficult when we think of like a piece of steak. Um, they can probably gnaw on it and they would certainly get some of the juices out of it that would be iron rich, but it would be really difficult for them to be able to chew it unless it was really soft, uh, you know, kind of slow cooked kind of meat. So a steak is a little bit more advanced, but you can modify how you serve the meat to make the, the meat age appropriate. Good. So and and so that's for the meat and uh, the, the protein part and the other foods can be pretty much any type of vegetables and fruits. Yeah, exactly. Um, and as, as I'm sure you guys know, there's no evidence that we have to introduce vegetables before fruits. Now we know that especially babies who've been breastfed have been introduced to the sweetest thing they're going to have because breast milk is very rich in lactose and very sweet. Um, so we don't need to worry about that. And it's really about what's developmentally, what can, what can we modify? What can we serve that's developmentally appropriate? So for vegetables, they should be, uh, they should be cooked and fork tender. So resist the urge to overcook them to make them safer because it's going to be more difficult for baby to pick up and you're going to lose a lot of the nutrients as well so especially the greens if they go to that olive color um, you've lost a lot of those water soluble um, vitamins so you want to cook it to fork tender broccoli is great cauliflower is great because it has that built-in stem that they can hold on to um, any of the root vegetables like sweet potatoes turnip squash anything that can be cut into a finger type shape um, or a french fry type shape that they could pick up we used to cook pretty regularly what i would call like a roasted root vegetable casserole so all different kinds of root vegetables with some garlic some rosemary some seasonings and we would cook that up and we would leave that then in the fridge so that if we were having something like pad thai for example that didn't necessarily lend itself to baby led weaning we would have something that we could you know easily heat up for them so having those kind of um, ready uh, foods at the ready will also help you improvise if you find yourself in a situation maybe where you're not cooking or you're eating at a restaurant that kind of thing so you talked about the curry the 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 root vegetable Absolutely. casserole so spices are okay we shouldn't serve yeah. food to our babies no, and any and the really interesting thing about flavors is that we we're, we're learning that the amniotic fluid is even flavored likely with what mom is eating, and uh, oh. breast milk is flavored with what mom is eating. Um, so babies have been introduced to flavors from day one, essentially. So there's no need to restrict that. And I always, you know, suggest just make sure that what you're eating isn't uncomfortable for you to eat. So we would have a biryani curry versus a vindaloo curry. So you know, just make sure that you taste it first and that it's not uncomfortable for you to eat. Um, but they'll probably surprise you. Um, we had a spaghetti sauce the other night that was spicier than we typically have it. Um, and it was really funny because my kids who are now five and eight, we don't tend to talk about things all that much in terms of spicy or not spicy. We try to use the word flavors and things like that. And it was about halfway through until my son looked up and he said, this has a lot of flavor, Mom. <laughs> you know, it didn't, and he was drinking glass after glass of water, and it kind of didn't occur to him not to eat it because it was spicy. It was just like, wow, this is different. So um, so don't shy away from flavor. I often will encourage people to do things like to bake an apple with cinnamon and introduce baby to cinnamon early on. Uh, you know, don't be afraid to use those different spices and flavors. The only thing that you do have to be cautious with is the amount of sodium that's used or the amount of salt. Um, their kidneys can't handle salt, um, a lot of salt until, you know, essentially they're adults. 
And so we all know that we need some, too much is bad. So as long as more than 80% of the food that you're preparing, uh, that you're serving your baby is made at home and you're not salting food and you're not using a third of a cup of soy sauce or something like that, chances are it's uh, not going to be too much of an issue. Um, You know, obviously we should all be eating fewer things that come from a package, a box or a can. And that's where most people in North America get the bulk of their sodium intake. So as long as we're modifying that and watching out for that, you don't need to count the amount of, uh, you know, the amount of salt that you're giving your baby, but um, just be cautious with foods that are heavily salted or that are packaged or preserved with salt. Good. And, and are, are there any other foods that we should avoid that are unsafe for babies? Well, you know, whole nuts, um, you know, whole beans, those types of things that would um, are small and could easily lodge in the back of the throat um, that may, you know, might pose a choking risk. Um, But the foods themselves, what we've learned about in the last kind of five or 10 years is that uh, delaying the introduction of allergens may actually increase the risk of allergy later in life. So in about 2008 to 2010 is when both Canada and the U.S. really kind of switched around their recommendations and said, unless there's a first degree relative with an allergy to a particular food, um, you know, the evidence is certainly trending towards earlier introductions of the allergen. So, and interestingly, um, continuing to breastfeed while introducing these allergens is even further protective. So more evidence that around six months seems to agree with all of that. So around six months, the gut has started to close. Um, you know, they have all of these, the, they have the ability to reach out and grab things and bring it up to their mouth and sit upright and hopefully still being breastfed by mom so that they're going to be get most protection over those six months until they become more exclusively food fed. Okay. So, yeah. So everything's a go, which makes it much easier um, than it was 10 years ago when the recommendation was, you know, a new food only every three days and only the egg yolks and not the whites, which didn't really make sense anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. All right. Yeah, go ahead, Stephanie. Yeah, it's really interesting, the difference in pediatricians, too, and their level of knowledge with this, because I go to a pretty progressive um, pediatric group, and when I asked her her thoughts, just totally curious, I was going to do it anyways, but I asked her her thoughts about baby-led weaning, and she had no idea, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I hear that from other pediatricians and other moms, their pediatrician will either love the idea or have no clue what it is. And the other thing, too, that I thought was interesting with our pediatrician is when I asked her what foods to avoid, in her opinion, she was like, nope, everything's good. You know, you can they, they can have whatever they want besides cow's milk and honey until, you know, at least age one. So, yeah, exactly. And that's certainly true. And honey, it's not because it's an allergen, but because yeah. of the risk of botulism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So very interesting. I'd be curious what our listeners are hearing from their pediatricians these days. The feedback that I get is uh, overwhelmingly that either same as your experience that their doctors haven't heard of it, have no idea what it is, um, you know, or, and they'll kind of say, oh, just do whatever you want, just make sure they're getting their iron, um, you know, or they'll say, well, that's just craziness, what are you, what are you talking about, mm-hmm. and, you know, we'll really kind of heavily discourage them from doing it, and then I get the phone call or the email saying, like, I don't know what to do now, so it's difficult that parents are being put in that position, um, but hopefully as baby-led weaning becomes more widespread. And like I said, in, in 2014, um, you know, Health Canada's Nutrition for Healthy Term Infants document, um, they came up with the updated document, and it really just stopped short of endorsing baby-led weaning. It talked about um, finger foods being appropriate, meats being appropriate, and that those finger 
foods and self-feeding should be offered as early as six mm-hmm. months. Um, you know, it didn't talk about, you know, doing it exclusively, but certainly, you know, it recognized that at six months old, a baby can self-feed certain foods. Um, and that's what I always like people to kind of, you know, the take-home message is that baby-led weaning as a standalone method of introduction um, is is viable. It's not for everyone, and if you have other people involved in the care and feeding of your child, I often joke about the grandparent factor um, that, you know, they certain grandmothers of certain generations just, you know, really want to spoon-feed their grandchild. It's a desperate need for them, and, you know, I mm. joke that my mom was one of those moms, and but, you know, she now sees the, be- the benefits of baby-led weaning and that our kids more often than not don't even order off the kids menu if we go out because they want all of the other yummy food that we're having so so yeah it's good and is it uh, normal to expect any changes in bowel movements after we introduce oh, yes food? <laughs> <laughs> so the the transitional poop stage um i'm sure both of you have survived that but um uh you know usually when a baby starts to ingest the food it changes their gut bacteria so it changes the microbiota um you know different enzymes are being brought into play um different food particles are making their way to the lower intestine where they're fermented by a good gut bacteria so as a result the consistency the texture the frequency and the odor of stool changes quite dramatically there's usually a couple of weeks of you know transitional stool where it could be messier look like partially breastfed poop partially solid poop but usually over one to two months sometimes you know as early as a couple of weeks depending on how quickly baby's taking to food but over a you know that kind of four to six week period um, it will transition over into more typical solid stool so yes there are changes that happen oh and be careful with blueberries that freaks me out oh (laughs) it turns like a purple black and i know that purple and black is not good (laughs) so when i found out that it was a blueberries i was a lot (laughs) relieved yeah and uh, and it's also pretty common for some foods to come out undigested in the early yeah. days um so the enzymes are really just starting to upregulate so a lot of the enzymes involved in digestion will um you know increase as baby starts to eat more food and so some of the more fibrous foods like corn uh or leafy greens or like the skins on grapes it's pretty typical for those to still be appearing in the stool initially okay so How do we know if the baby is getting enough food or if they're getting too much? And that's a really good question. Um, You know, as long as a baby continues to grow uh, as expected, so just like in a breastfed baby, we have no idea how much breast milk they're getting. Um, so as long as a baby continues to grow and meet developmental milestones um, and is having, you know, uh, meeting all those growth requirements, that's probably the best indicator that they're eating. The amount of food that a six-month-old needs is quite small because the bulk of their nutrition really should still be coming from breast milk. So we don't worry if a six-month-old eats one day or not the next. And, you know, like, did I say your yeah, name right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like your little guy, you know, it took him a couple of months to really get interested Mm -hmm. in it. And so you'll probably start to notice that over the next month or two, he's going to really ramp up the amount of food that he's eating. All babies will get there on their own pace. And as long as there's no concerns with growth and development and that everybody's just kind of keeping an eye on things, I don't see the need to micromanage the process because most babies at 12 months will end up in the same place, eating three meals, lots of snacks, that kind of thing. Um, So again, growth and development is our best indicator 
Um, the question often comes up is, you know, my baby loves to eat so much. How do I know if they're getting too much? Well, at six, seven, and eight months old, we shouldn't see a change in breastfeeding behavior. So we don't want solid food to displace breast milk at that age because breast milk is the more nutrient-dense choice, the more nutritious, and really what they still need to continue growing. Um, So as long as your baby is continuing to breastfeed about the same amount that they were before, they can really self-select and feed on demand. So if they want more food and are eating and enjoying more food and are self-feeding, you can continue to offer that to them and not necessarily worry about about how much they're getting. If it seems like it is displacing the amount of breast milk that they're getting, then you may want to try distraction. So once they've had a few servings of something, maybe take them out for a walk or go out and play in the backyard and then kind of see where they end up. And that you would say until the baby's at least a year. Yeah, by a year, about 75% or more of their nutrition should really be coming from food at that point. So it's a, you know, it's a transition. And just like all of the other milestones, different babies get there at at different rates. Okay. And along with that nursing um, idea, is it best to offer the food before or after nursing then? Um, I usually suggest about an hour after. So we have to remember that, again, this is a skill that they're learning. So if you're learning a new skill, you don't want to do that hungry, right? You don't, <laughs> you don't want to go sit in a conference and be starving. So you don't want to learn a new skill hungry. So a baby probably doesn't want to do that either. So I usually suggest nursing. And then about an hour later is a good time um, to, to offer them food. So And that usually works out well with a six-month-old's nap schedule, who they typically have a mid-morning nap, get up 10, 30, 11 nurse when they wake up and then about an hour later everyone might be sitting down to lunch or sit or supper or whatever that may be okay yeah I, I found you know with Otto being a voracious eater <laughs> I actually had to kind of time it out a little bit so he loves to nurse and he loves to eat and he actually was kind of <laughs> refluxing a little bit because he just and he's not overweight either he's a really healthy lean baby but he's very active and very interested in food yeah. um so I found that I had to nurse him and then wait an hour and then give him food and then wait an hour about and then nurse him again. Oh my um, you know, like I had to spread it out and that's maybe not the case for everybody. But if you're noticing that your baby is refluxing quite a bit, um, you might just need to spread out the, the distance between the food and the nursing. I agree. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, with babies, um, that lower esophageal sphincter is really just starting to become less flappy at six months old. Um, So if there still is kind of a lot of liquidy food sitting there and there's a large volume of it, they definitely could predispose them to a little bit of reflux. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your wisdom, Dr. Salib Uber. I I know you said to call you Jen, but (laughs) (laughs) do you have any uh, final words of encouragement or final tips for moms uh, and parents interested in trying baby led weaning well I just want people to have fun and ultimately that's what food should be about I'm very much about trying to create healthy relationships with food Um, and you know I, I think that our kids Um, are growing up in a generation where they have more exposure to foods of all types and all kinds, good and bad, and that we want to model healthy eating behavior and healthy relationships with food. So teaching them to know when they're hungry, to, to eat when they are, and to stop when they're full is such an important thing. And to enjoy food and to to want to try different things and to not to fear food. So um, I really think that that's one of the the 
biggest benefits of baby led weaning is that it encourages all of that and it's cheaper and it's easier and it's a lot of fun so just have fun with it and know that it can be a standalone way of feeding your baby it doesn't have to be and uh, like I said if you have other people involved in in caring for your child it it may not work out but even just doing little bits of it starting at six or seven months um, introduces them to different textures different tastes different foods um, and they'll come out winners in the end. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much again for coming on this show today. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. So this is it. Please remember that the views on this podcast and website are not meant to be substituted for medical advice, shouldn't be used to diagnose, treat, or cure any conditions, and are intended for general information purposes only. And thank you for listening to Real Food Mamas. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share the podcast to help us spread the real food word. We also invite you to visit our website, realfoodmamaspodcast.com, and our new Facebook page, Real Food Mamas, to find past episodes, leave comments, and ask questions for future shows. Remember, we're also on iTunes and Stitcher. Now go on, have a good day, and nourish and nurture you and your family.